Nancy Pelosi has announced that she's going to Taiwan. The Chinese are calling this a strategic level provocation. The Chinese defense minister said that China is prepared to fight to the very end to protect Taiwan's status. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking to Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He's a founding director of the Confucius Institute. He's also an organizer and activist with the peace organization, Pivot to Peace. Dr. Ken Hammond, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Always glad to be here. Ken, people who are sort of learning about China for the first time or don't know that much, don't follow the news closely, especially people in the United States who get their news and information and perspective from the Western capitalist-owned so-called mainstream media, they might not understand why the Chinese are saying they're prepared to fight till the end simply because news leaked that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi intends to go to Taiwan in August. Let's help people understand why this is so central for China. You know, the idea that the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third person in the line of succession to the presidency, a very, very high-ranking member of the United States government, is planning on making an official journey, an official visit to the island of Taiwan. It goes completely against the official position of the government of the United States, which is that there is only one China, and that Taiwan is part of China. This was stated in the Shanghai communique 50 years ago. It was reiterated in two subsequent bilateral communiques. This is the official position of the United States, and it is also the status of things in the United Nations. China holds the seat for itself in the United Nations on the Security Council. Taiwan is part of China, and that's recognized by the vast majority of governments of states, of member states of the UN as well. So, you know, this idea that the United States, that a very high-ranking leader of the United States government is going to have an official visit to sort of acknowledge or legitimize the idea that the government that is in place on Taiwan is something other than you know, local authorities within the larger structure of China. This goes against the official version of things, the way things ought to be, the way things actually are. But it is part and parcel of what has been an ongoing practice by the United States of actions, activities that are provocative, that are seen, that are felt by the Chinese to be provocative and are intended by the United States to be provocative, to try to elicit a reaction from China, to challenge China's sovereignty, to challenge its territorial integrity, to interfere in its internal affairs. The Taiwan issue is an internal affair of the Chinese people on both sides of the straits. And it's one that the Chinese have been very clear. They want to resolve in their own way, in their own time, without any outside interference. And if that process could be allowed to go forward unmolested, I'm sure the Chinese people would find ways to work together and grow together in a future. There's no need for that to be rushed or pressured or pushed. The only pressure, the only disruption in that process is what comes from the outside, especially from the United States. So, you know, there's a long history of this, the South China Sea, sailing American warships through the Taiwan Strait, which is clearly China's territorial waters. These are acts which the United States has been carrying out with increasing frequency in order to try to push China, to provoke China, perhaps trying to get China to do something ill-advised, to do something that would legitimize the portrayal of China as the expansionist aggressive power, when in fact, of course, it's the United States that has gone thousands and thousands of miles across the Pacific, right to the shores of China, 
to assert its rights, its dominance, its power in the world. It's not the Chinese that are doing this. Chinese don't have foreign bases. They have one little naval facility in the Horn of Africa to help the UN out with anti-piracy activities. But China's not out there in the wider world trying to take over other countries, manage their internal affairs, impose their power. That's what the United States does. And so this is yet another step, yet another gesture along those lines. But it's a particularly important one because of the high level that Speaker Pelosi occupies and because of the sort of flagrancy with which she's carrying out this activity. I think it's quite reckless. I think it's irresponsible. And I think, frankly, that it's very dangerous. Right. The Chinese are are going out of their way to not downplay this announcement or this leak. Pelosi was scheduled to go in April. She canceled her trip because she said she had covid The Chinese said, don't come, do not do this. This is a de facto recognition that Taiwan has independence or a kind of different status rather than being part of China. So they said, don't come. Now it appears that she is coming. The Chinese media is also making the case, and it's not just the Chinese media, it's the foreign ministry as well, making the case that one other time, In recent period, a speaker of the House came to Taiwan. That was in 1997 when Republican Newt Gingrich went to Taiwan. But the Chinese are making the point that at that time, Bill Clinton, the Democrat, was the president of the United States. Newt Gingrich was a political opponent of Bill Clinton. He wasn't being sent there by Bill Clinton. But this is different, the Chinese are saying, because Clearly, Joe Biden is a Democrat. He's the president. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House because the Democrats control the House of Representatives. This visit, if it takes place by Nancy Pelosi, could not happen without the sanction, the support, the blessing of Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken and the Pentagon. In other words, this would be a matter of U.S. policy, not a random act by an opponent of the current administration. It's clearly not a random act, and it is clearly part of an orchestrated long-term campaign that in part is these provocative actions that I mentioned before in the South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, you know, the rhetoric around Taiwan. But of course, the United States has been interfering in China's internal affairs in a variety of other ways, whether it's accusations about the situation in Xinjiang or in Tibet, or whether it's the kind of clandestine funding of anti-government rioting in Hong Kong. It's a situation where You know, the United States is basically in a full court press trying to demonize China, trying to make the American people be afraid of China. And one way to do that is to poke them, you know, to sort of provoke them so that they'll perhaps say something or even worse, do something that would then validate the demonization campaign. American politicians could then point to China and say, oh, look, you know, see, that just proves our point. I think the Chinese have been remarkably restrained in their responses. Certainly, they have condemned these provocations and the rhetoric, as you say, they're not holding back on what they're saying about Speaker Pelosi's impending visit. But I think they're trying to communicate. They're trying to make a point. They're trying to in a sense, give the United States the opportunity to come to its senses and back off. That doesn't seem to be working, but I think we have to admire the restraint that the Chinese have shown up to this point. I want to play a video clip. This is Zhao Lijian. He is the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson. This is about the announcement or the leak that Nancy Pelosi does intend to go to Taiwan. Again, We learned not so long ago that the U.S. secretly sent military advisors to train the Taiwanese military, obviously, for a potential battle with China. Again, a complete violation of U.S.-China foundational terms of the relationship as identified in the Shanghai communique and then in two further communiques what the Chinese call the guardrails of U.S.-China relations. Anyway, let's listen to the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson and, and then get your comments. If the U.S. side is bent on having its own way, China will take resolute and forceful measures to firmly defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. All consequences resulting from this must be entirely 
the responsibility of the United States side. Yeah, those are fighting words. I mean, they're not inflammatory, but they're saying, look, we're serious. We mean it. And if something happens, you're to blame. That is certainly the message that Zhao Lijian is communicating there. And I think that the Chinese, as I say, have been very, very restrained up to this point. I don't think this means that they're going to, you know, launch some sort of military intervention, you know, when Speaker Pelosi lands in Taiwan. But I think that certainly China has other options. China has leverage in a variety of ways in terms of its ownership of American debt, for example, in terms of its trade relationship with the United States. And the military options, of course, are not off the table. China has put up with a lot from the United States for a long, long time. And of course, all of that fits into a, a deeper historical context of imperialist exploitation of China for, you know, 100, 150 years. So, you know, the, the idea that China might at some point take retaliatory measures, you know, I don't think that that is off the table and, and I don't think it should be off the table. It's hard to predict what those measures might be, but the language that Zhao Lijian uses there talking about being resolute and that the consequences of these provocations, and especially right now, the consequence of having the third highest ranking member of the American government make an official visit to Taiwan, that the consequences of that kind of action do fall entirely on the United States. China's not doing anything to provoke that, you know, and so the U.S. is the one that's changing the relationship, that's violating the not just the spirit, but the letter of these bilateral agreements that have been in place for 50 years. And, you know, the idea that they can just do this with impunity, it reaches a point where something needs to be done about it. Exactly what that will be, I think only the Chinese will be in a position to determine. And I hope that and I totally expect that they will conduct themselves in a way that is appropriate and measured and all that. But I think that it's very clear that they're reaching a kind of a kind of limit of their tolerance to this kind of renegade behavior by a rogue state from, you know, the international perspective. You know, Secretary of State Blinken and President Biden and other foreign policy spokespeople have been mouthing off a lot recently about what they call a rules-based international order. And yet we see in an instance like this, yes, there are rules, and those rules have to do with the communiques signed by both the United States and China, agreements that both countries put their signatures to and made a commitment to. Those are the rules, and it is the United States which is violating those, which is just casting them aside, paying lip service to them one day and then acting in a, in a way that is a flagrant and blatant violation of them the next. Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is the latest, but by no means the only such example. Right. You know, since you mentioned Anthony Blinken and his preoccupation with the international rules-based order, which is clearly distinctive from the UN Charter, because the UN Charter isn't described as that. And that was up until now, until the U.S. has redefined what's legal and what the international order is, the United States always would have said the UN Charter constitutes the basis of international relations. But since you mentioned it, I want to play a, a video clip. This is from the first meeting, the very first meeting where Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan met with the Chinese, their Chinese counterparts, including Wang Yi, the foreign minister, and another senior, top senior Chinese official. That was in Alaska, if you remember. And the tone by Blinken and Sullivan established the very aggressive, I would say hyper-aggressive posture of the United States from day one after Biden came into office. Let's listen to that because I want to come back to it and then we'll go back to Taiwan. Let's listen. Our administration uh, is committed to leading with diplomacy, to advance the interests of the United States, and to strengthen the rules-based international order. That system is not an abstraction. It helps countries resolve differences peacefully, uh, coordinate multilateral efforts effectively, and participate in global commerce with the assurance that everyone is following the same rules. The alternative to a rules-based order is a world in which might makes right and winners take all. 
and that would be a far more violent and unstable world for all of us. Uh, today, uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss key priorities, uh, both domestic uh, and global, so that China can better understand our administration's intentions and approach. All right, and then he goes on there. We don't have the full clip, but he goes on to talk about Taiwan, talk about Hong Kong, talk about Xinjiang, highlighting all of the points where the United States is acting in the most hyper-aggressive way towards the People's Republic of China. But that's a rude beginning, and especially if we had heard the entire clip, a very rude, aggressive beginning in terms of the posture established by Biden and the Biden administration towards China. Yeah, I think that when the Biden administration came in, there were some expectations and certainly harbored some faint hope myself that a democratic administration would turn away from the hostility that the Trump administration had been projecting towards China. It's, you know, the Trump trade war and all that. And that, you know, President Biden might take a more pragmatic, a more realistic, a more down-to-earth kind of approach, looking for ways to build a constructive, positive relationship with China, seeing China's rise, its economic development, its engagement with other countries around the world, its participation in international activities as an opportunity to share in that growth, to share in the prosperity which China has been bringing to its own people and helping other people in different parts of the world to develop for themselves. But sadly, what we have seen under the Biden administration is an America which is in some ways even more hostile, even more aggressive towards China. And of course, all we have to do to understand that is think back to the fact that Biden himself was vice president under Obama and that it was Obama and his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, who back in 2011 enunciated the American pivot to Asia. Secretary of State Clinton talking about, you know, a new American Pacific century, reasserting the idea that the United States was going to be the dominant power, was going to continue to perpetuate its, its privileges, its hegemony on the far side of the Pacific, and indeed all around the world. So seeing the Biden administration in this light, perhaps its aggressive policies towards China, not more understandable in the sense of agreeing with them or appreciating them, but comprehensible, you know, as an expression of really in many ways bilateral hostility based upon America's eroding position in the world, the decline of American power, the decline of American prosperity, which is certainly something felt by working people all across the country. And, you know, trying to address that or trying to alleviate that, not to alleviate the pain, but trying to divert perhaps people's attention from that by this kind of foreign policy posturing, this kind of demonizing of China, shifting the responsibility for difficulties the United States is facing from its own aggressive behavior in the world, the decline of its own extractive, exploitive relationship with other parts of the world, and trying to blame it on China, China's rise, the idea that that the improvement the enhancement of the lives of, you know, 1.4 billion Chinese people is a bad thing. You know, it's something that that hurts us for them to be able to to feed their families better, to have education for their children, to have the kind of health care that protects them through a pandemic while Americans are abandoned to die over a million Americans. You know, the idea of demonizing China, turning what's happening in China around and trying to make them be the boogeyman and the bad guy. It's a sad kind of pathetic thing in some ways, but it's also a very, very dangerous thing in terms of, you know, these kinds of provocations of which Pelosi's journey is just the latest incarnation. Yeah, it's a reckless policy. The United States doesn't need to do this with Taiwan. Taiwan is under no imminent threat from the People's Republic of China. But I want to help the audience understand, Ken, why Taiwan is so important. In one way, if Taiwan was never reunified with China, just like if Hong Kong had never been reunified with China, it wouldn't really have had a direct, immediate impact on China's principal priority, which is its own economic development. And we can see in the past 40 years, China's had the fastest growth rate in the world, in the world economy. 
850 million Chinese who were living in extreme poverty, meaning on less than $2 a day, have been brought out of extreme poverty. The life expectancy of China, which was very low at the time of the Chinese Revolution, when you know so many people, maybe a million a year, were starving to death, the life expectancy in China has now, as a consequence of the government's priorities on economic and social development, the life expectancy in China has now surpassed the United States. So in one way, Taiwan seems like to be sort of a footnote, sort of something in history. Same with Hong Kong, actually. But I want you to help the audience understand why this is so important to China, even if it's not crucial to China's own economic development, because it goes to the history of the Chinese Revolution, which is not so long ago, the victory of the Chinese Revolution. And the Chinese, when Mao Zedong spoke in Tiananmen Square on October 1st, 1949, he famously said, the Chinese people have stood up. It wasn't like, now we're building communism and socialism. Yes, it was a communist party. Yes, it had a socialist perspective. But it was about China standing up. And clearly the context there was the century of humiliation, as the Chinese call it, where parts of China were actually taken from China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, the dismemberment of China by colonial powers, that from the point of view of the Chinese political psyche and Chinese body politics, Taiwan and Hong Kong are not, even though they're not critical for its economic development, they are critical from the point of view of its own national identity. Let's just talk about how that all happened. It is a deep historical issue. Taiwan has been part of China, part of the political entity that we think of as China, all the way back to the Ming Dynasty, all through the last Qing Dynasty from the 17th to the early 20th centuries. Taiwan, it's a complex society. There are indigenous people living on the island. There are people who migrated Chinese from the mainland who migrated there 700 years ago. There are more recent, obviously, people who transferred to the island in 1948, 1949 from the mainland. But Taiwan is culturally part of China. It has been politically, administratively part of China for hundreds of years. In 1895, at the end of the first Sino-Japanese War, when Japan defeated China, part of the settlement of that was that China was forced to cede the island of Taiwan to Japan. And for 50 years, from 1895 to the end of World War II, 1945, Taiwan was part of the Japanese Empire. That means that Chinese territory was stripped away by an imperialist aggression and taken for someone else's use. Of course, Hong Kong was taken back in 1842 at the end of the Opium War, a war that Britain fought to be able to, you know, sell its drugs, you know, the greatest drug dealers in the world, imposed their will upon China by force, use of the Royal Navy, and they took Hong Kong. They forced China to give them that island and then later some adjacent territory on the mainland. So this idea of kind of dismembering one's country foreign powers, imperialist powers, taking territory for themselves, you know, this is something of a sensitive issue. It's not the sort of thing that goes down well. Chinese culture, Chinese political culture, Chinese civilization has a very strong historical consciousness. In many ways, I sometimes feel like American popular culture and political culture is kind of willfully amnesiac or at least highly selective in its memories. But China, you know, history in China, the connection to the past is a very powerful force in Chinese culture. And the attitude on the part of the United States seems to be, oh, century of humiliation, sure, that was bad, but just get over it, you know. But that's not how things work for many people in China. And I think that the sensitivities about something like Taiwan and Hong Kong have very, very deep roots. They're also embedded in more recent political events, although even those are now more than 70 years old, with the end of the revolution. The revolutionary struggle led by the Communist Party to rid China of imperialist domination and to create the circumstances that would allow 
the Chinese people to stand up, to pursue a socialist future, to seek a path that would improve their livelihoods, improve their material standards of living, give them you know, a meaningful voice, meaningful participation in the governance of their own country. This was a huge, huge struggle, and its victory in 1949 came with, obviously, the defeat of the nationalists who retreated to Taiwan and have remained on Taiwan. They're no longer the dominant political force. They don't control the presidency there all the time the way they used to, but there's still a force there. And the government on Taiwan still claims to be the Republic of China. It still makes the same claims about territory, about sovereignty for itself that the PRC does for the mainland. This is a legacy. This is a division in the country that has been in place now you know, since 1949. I think Americans need, when we think about China and we think about Taiwan, one thing that would be good for a lot of Americans to do is take a minute and reflect upon the fact that when a part of the United States tried to go its own way, tried to break away and form a separate government, and I'm talking here about the Confederacy, the United States went to war, the bloodiest war in American history, to preserve the Union. You know, we understand that there were many, many issues involved in that. The desire to eradicate slavery, create an integrated labor market. But at the bottom of certainly the political rhetoric that was deployed at the time was the idea of preserving the union. Well, all China is trying to do with the issue of Taiwan is to preserve its territorial integrity, to preserve its sovereignty. Sovereignty and territorial integrity, which are acknowledged explicitly in the bilateral agreements between the United States and China, and which Pelosi's trip completely violates, completely, you know, just ignores. So, yes, the relationship with Taiwan, the situation with Taiwan has deep historical roots going back into imperial times, more recently with the war with Japan and then with the civil war within China. All of that goes into the consciousness of the Chinese, both in government and in ordinary society. Support for unification, support for the reintegration of Taiwan and the rest of the country is widespread in China. You know, The vast majority of people just take that as a given because it has such a strong historical background and such a strong historical basis. So I think that the United States ignores that and does so at its own risk and conducts these provocations and acts in this reckless way because it doesn't really, you know, American political leaders don't really take the feelings, the wishes of the Chinese people seriously. And they exploit this situation for their own domestic political gain. It makes great headlines. It gets them points in, you know, in the macho competition of American politics. It might help them boost them in a poll somewhere. But it, boy, it is not a responsible, it's not a mature conduct towards the most populous country in the world, perhaps the greatest economy, certainly on parity with the United States. It's just a reckless kind of behavior that ignores deep historical experience and deep historical feelings on the part of the Chinese. Ken, when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you were a kid as well, the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China government, was always referred to as Red China. As if there were two Chinas, there was a red China and meaning the communist China, and then the China that was at the United Nations, the China that was represented and represented all of China as a legitimate entity at the United Nations, at the Security Council, where it had a seat, veto power, as the five permanent members of the Security Council have a veto. That would be, of course, the United States, Britain, France at that time, the Soviet Union, and China. But China was represented by the government in Taiwan that had fled China after having been defeated in that 27-year-long civil war, defeated by Mao and the communist-led military forces. And so the United States recognized that government as the government. I think that's really important for, again, I think most Americans who were born later won't know that Taiwan was the official government of China until 1971, and the Republic of China, so-called, the Chiang Kai-shek government, was ousted. 
during that whole time, during that entire period when I was a kid or when you were a kid or the way it was explained to the American people was that there was Red China, which was the communist dictatorship. And then there was democratic China, which was at held the seat at the United Nations and democratic China, the Republic of China was the government in Taiwan. Let's also help the audience understand how the government that the U.S. supported and kept in place in Taiwan was in fact the antithesis of democracy. It was a bloody, bloody dictatorship. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's very important to understand what the political realities on the island were. You know, while the Civil War was moving towards its conclusion on the mainland, the nationalists, you know, began to understand that they were not going to prevail, that the revolution was going to succeed, and they looked to Taiwan as a refuge. This has historical precedent in earlier periods in Chinese history. Ming Dynasty loyalists withdrew to Taiwan after the fall of Beijing in 1644. But they decided they were going to go to Taiwan and you know, sort of ensconce themselves there. The people on Taiwan were not in favor of that. And in 1947, there was an uprising in February of 1947 against the nationalist forces that were on the island at that point trying to sort of prepare the ground for the nationalists to take over there. That uprising was brutally suppressed. Thousands and thousands of people killed, tens of thousands of people arrested, and martial law was proclaimed on Taiwan. And that state of martial law remained in place all through the subsequent decades, all the way down almost to the end of the 20th century. It was eventually lifted after the death of Chiang Kai-shek, but not immediately after the death of Chiang Kai-shek. He died in 75. It persisted for almost another 20 years. And under martial law, of course, there was no democracy. There was no freedom. It was a very, very rigid police state that was touted by the United States. I remember, you know, that contrast you talk about red China on the one hand and what was often called free China because it wasn't the communist dictatorship. But there was nothing free about the lives of ordinary people on Taiwan under martial law the nationalist police state maintained a rigid control over people's lives. Now, that eases after the lifting of martial law, subsequent generations after the death of Chiang Kai-shek, and then after the passing of his son, Zhang Jingguo, who became president after him. Once that starts to ease, Taiwan has had its own version of a multi-party political system, the nationalists still being very important, but a couple of other parties, including the Democratic People's Party that is holds the presidency now. They've been, you know, trading power back and forth. But, you know, it's the same kind of money-driven electoral politics there that we see here in the United States. And I think we understand that, that that doesn't necessarily articulate the actual needs or interests of a lot of ordinary people. There was a lot of capital accumulation going on, a lot of money being made, and a lot of investment poured into Taiwan from the United States in order to create this sort of economic miracle. The only miracle about it was you know, the amount of money the United States was willing to put in there just to make Taiwan look better than what was happening on the mainland. So Taiwan is hardly been an independent country anyway because of the intensive interference of the United States there. You know, and of course, obviously that continues today. Secret military missions, all the selling of weapons systems to Taiwan, the diplomatic posturing. The situation for Taiwan is extremely complex, but it remains the legal reality of the one China policy, the one China reality. And that's something that the Chinese want to see resolved in a peaceful, long-term way. The Chinese, you know, as I said earlier, they're not the ones pushing this. They're not the ones destabilizing the situation. Those historical roots, that context of martial law and repression, and now, you know, a pay-to-play kind of political system, those are the realities that people on Taiwan have to deal with. I don't think anybody there wants to have their lives be dramatically disrupted by a military clash, which only serves the interests of American politicians. The Chinese foreign ministry has said that there are what they call guardrails, meaning the thing that keeps the car safe and the car being U.S.-China relations. And those guardrails are the three communiques. So 
I'm going to start with the Shanghai communique because Richard Nixon goes to China following a secret diplomacy with Henry Kissinger and Zhou Enlai and Mao. And Nixon comes in 1972 and they sign the Shanghai communique. February 1972 is, you know, 50 years ago. Ken, you and I were involved along with others from Pivot to Peace in a commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai Communique. And then the other guardrails that the Chinese government is announcing are two subsequent communiques. The key to the communique, the key to the reestablishment of U.S.-China relations following Nixon's trip and starting at Nixon's trip was the core element of the Shanghai Communique. And the core element was a recognition and acknowledgement that Taiwan is indeed a part of China. Nixon wanted to go to China for his own reasons. They were trying to end the war in Vietnam. They were trying to divide the Soviet Union from the People's Republic of China and vice versa. It's kind of a divide and conquer strategy against the two major socialist countries. It was a complicated political maneuver. But the Chinese said to, the, to Nixon and earlier to Kissinger, look, Okay, we'll welcome you. We want normal relations with the United States, which is, of course, completely understandable and proper for a socialist country which desires peace and thus normal relations. Yes, we want this, but the key is that you must acknowledge that Taiwan is part of China. That was that important to China at that time. And the Shanghai communique says as much. And then Deng Xiaoping meets with, I believe, Carter in 1979, and then there's a subsequent communique in the early 1980s. Let's talk about these guardrails, as the Chinese put it, and how the Biden administration appears to be trying to tear those guardrails down. Well, I know going along the path here following Chinese affairs, I feel like, you know, when you're driving down the interstate and you see that big orange sign that says guardrail damage ahead, you know, that things have not remained on the path, on the safe track that the United States committed itself to. The United States made, you know, diplomatic undertakings. They signed these communiques. These are bilateral agreements between the United States and China signed by both countries. China has certainly respected those. China has played by the rules. It's the United States that has sort of just ignored them and in many ways really cast them aside. I think the danger of that is pretty self-evident. And it, you know, it gives the lie to this idea of uh, the commitment that the United States has to some international rules-based order. It's when it's in their interest, sure. When it's not in their interest, then they'll ignore their own rules because those are the rules that they're talking about. So the guardrails are vitally important, but both sides have to respect them. It doesn't work if one side plays along by the rules and respects the guardrails and stays on the road the way they're supposed to, while the other side is crashing through them, risking everything, you know, in pursuit of its own its own agenda, its own self-serving political agenda, its own domestic rhetorical agenda. The guardrails are there to protect everybody. And by ignoring them and crashing through them, the United States is endangering people in Taiwan, people on the mainland, even people here in the United States. And as we've said uh, all along, it's a sad and a reckless way to be pursuing policy. I want to talk to you or get you to talk about this issue of fear or hatred or both that's being generated by this political demonizing of China. And again, the U.S. military doctrine was changed with the Pentagon Quadrennial Report in 2018, said the United States is no longer prioritizing the war against terror. That's passe. That's old time. Now we're getting ready for major power conflict. And of course, who are the major powers? China and Russia. And now the U.S. is at war, at a proxy war in Ukraine, following the U.S. endlessly pushing NATO further and further to the east, refusing to even talk to Russia about their demand that Ukraine be neutral, meaning not a staging ground for U.S. advanced nuclear and conventional missiles, pushing NATO all the way up to Russia's border. And the U.S. finally, because of this reckless provocation, finally Russia says, OK, if you're not going to listen to us in negotiations, we have another method, a plan B, military action. And what Russia calls the special 
military operation in Ukraine, what the West calls the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Anyway, that was a consequence of a longer policy where the United States insisted in a way that Ukraine, which had been the second largest republic after Russia in the Soviet Union, a principal, the most important Russian ally, enter the U.S. military camp. Now the U.S. is saying to China, at the same time, just within a few months, look what we're doing with Taiwan, almost as if Taiwan would be sort of a de facto member of NATO too. It's this kind of reckless provocation. And so Americans are being spoon-fed all of this, hate China, fear China. And then let's just think about the reality of China. China's number one priority, obviously, is its own economic and social development. And I mentioned a statistic, which I find to be remarkable, which is that China's life expectancy has now surpassed the United States. This was just announced in the last couple of weeks. Now, people think, oh, China's getting rich, China's taking our jobs, blah, 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 as if China somehow put a gun to the heads of American corporate executives insisting that they invest in China, which is obviously not true. They went to China because they thought they could make money. China got a lot of new technology as a consequence and was able to develop. But China's still poor. China is still a poor country. I mean, the per capita income of Chinese people, per capita income, which has gone up a lot, it still can 17.9%, that's the official statistics, 17.9% of what the American per capita income would be. Meaning the average American worker has an income that's five times greater than the income of an average Chinese worker, even though their incomes have gone up a lot. And China's obviously still trying to overcome the legacy of underdevelopment, the legacy of colonialism, the legacy of humiliation, and the legacy of poverty. And here we are, a society that has increased per capita income a lot, but still only 17.9% of the American worker, and now their life expectancy has surpassed the U.S. worker. I mean, that says that the government actually is pursuing policies designed to help people in their social and material existence. And I'm thinking, why should American workers hate and fear a society like that instead of saying, look, let's be friends. Let's learn from each other. Let's learn about Chinese culture. Maybe let's learn Chinese instead of this policy of hatred and fear. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that the demonization of China is a campaign that has been carried on pretty relentlessly by successive American administrations on both sides of the bourgeois political divide. I think that it's designed, as you say, to instill these feelings of fear, of mistrust, of anxiety about China. And sadly, it has been in many ways a very effective campaign. A lot of people buy into the idea that, you know, China oppresses its people, both Chinese people, ethnically Han people and non-Chinese, non-Han people, you know, that it has this, you know, hyper exploitive economy, that it suppresses freedom of thought and expression and things like that. And, you know, that's just not the reality that exists in China. Chinese people, the vast majority of whom are strong supporters of their government, of the policies of their government and the system of government that they have. You mentioned some of the achievements, some of the accomplishments that China has, the eradication of absolute poverty, health care, the provision of health care. Doesn't mean that China has the best health care system in the world, but Things like, you know, the fact that, as you say, life expectancy has risen above that of the United States. The United States life expectancy has declined markedly by a couple of years because of the mishandling of the COVID pandemic. China, of course, still has fewer than 5,500 deaths while the United States has over a million. You know, and that's, of course, as we know, for a population four times the size. Housing educational opportunities, employment security. There's so many ways in which China has made the enhancement, the improvement of the lives of its people its number one priority. That just gets ignored, denied 
in Western propaganda. And because so few Americans go to China, so few Americans read or speak Chinese, the government here restricts and tries to limit as best it can the influx of information coming from China and constantly spews forth its own rhetoric, its own propaganda about China, about all the bad things that are alleged about China. It's no wonder that many people in America are, you know, buy into that or are are susceptible to that messaging. That, again, is irresponsible, but it's not incomprehensible because it's part of America's overall kind of strategic thrust here in these decades of the 21st century. American power around the world is eroding. You know, the American economy is declining. The ability of the American people to maintain their standard of living is being repressed by American capital. I mean, capital, as we know, capital has no homeland. Capital goes wherever it wants around the world to maximize its profitability. And that has taken a lot of capital away from the United States. It has converted the United States from an economy of producers to an economy of consumers and service workers. And that's just not a basis for the kinds of economic growth and the economic accomplishment that would lead to further enhancements, further improvements in American livelihoods. So we're in a situation of decline. We're in a situation where American power is being challenged, where many countries, not just China, but countries all around the world are trying to get out from under the American thumb, trying to get out from under American domination. Not surprisingly, the American elites, the ruling class here, they see that as threatening their interests, threatening their power and their privileges, and they're desperate to try to thwart that. They target Russia and China as their enemies. You know, and Russia and China are very different countries themselves. They don't have the same systems. They don't have the same political cultures. They don't have the same histories. But they do have some community of interests, in large part, trying to keep themselves safe and secure from American power. So the position of the United States in the world today is an increasingly vulnerable one. And that is what drives the desperation of American politicians to try to hang on, you know, to try to fight back, in a sense, against that decline. The problem is, of course, that that decline, the decline of American power, is a function of of deep, deep changes taking place around the world. The reallocation of productive resources, the transfers of technology, the developments of new technologies around the world that are producing new opportunities for growth, new opportunities for development in many parts of the world out of the control of American-dominated capital. And that's a big problem for that. It's a big problem for the continued profitability of American capital, Western capital in general. And that's a process, though, that isn't going to be stopped by you know legislation. It isn't going to be stopped by political rhetoric. It isn't even going to be stopped by the United States kind of throwing its weight around provoking a proxy war in Ukraine and things like that. These are self-defeating in the long run actions, you know? And as you say, it would be so much better. The logical thing to do, the reasonable thing to do would be try to work together with China, with other countries that are trying to improve their situations, not to enhance the profitability of American corporations, but to find a path for prosperity that would be shared by the people. That, of course, runs into the problems of the capitalist system. And I think that's why we understand that that deep changes are needed in that as well. Yeah. I mean, many, many millions of people in the United States, especially young people, are looking for alternatives Socialism is becoming more popular. We could see that with the Bernie Sanders campaign, with the growth of socialist organizations. There are many, many indications of that. I want to go to our last topic here. And the idea that the U.S. must be prepared for, prioritize for, budget for, plan militarily for conflict with China, that became like a consensus position within the U.S. establishment almost overnight. There was no big debate in the media, no big debate in Congress. When I say big debate, I mean debate. I mean any debate. There was no debate at all. There were 110 bills in Congress. None of them are pro-normalization of relations with China. They're all punitive. They're all repressive. They're all negative about China. Congress people are competing with each other to see who can you know, be more hawkish towards China. And this includes even the liberal Democrats. 
the people who during the old Cold War would have favored good relations with China or good relations with the Soviet Union, they're all part of this consensus. But now, and especially in the aftermath of the first months of the terrible war in Ukraine and you know the terrible loss of life in Ukraine, but again, yes, Russia pulled the trigger on February 24th, but it wasn't really the start of the conflict. You have to go back to the coup d'etat that overthrew a neutral government in Ukraine that the U.S. supported the coup in 2014, and then the endless and rapid and dynamic expansion of of NATO into the east all the way up to Russia's border. So it's a longer story. But anyway, it's a terrible war. But in the aftermath of the war, there are the beginnings of a few voices, notably Henry Kissinger, who's 99 years old, who suddenly appears in American politics as a dove when all of us, when we were younger, thought he was like the ultimate hawk. He's a dove because he says, look, Russia and China actually are big countries, major countries. They have legitimate interests. You can't make them go away. They're not going to be neo-colonies. You can't really treat them like Venezuela and expect that they're going to accept it, et cetera, et cetera. So Henry Kissinger is a voice in foreign affairs, which is the magazine of the Council on Foreign Relations. The Council on Foreign Relations is an important establishment think tank. At one time, it was much more powerful. It basically, to be a secretary of the state, you had to get the the support of the Council on Foreign Relations at once upon a time. It's not that powerful now, but it's still important. There's an article written by Michael Brenz, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, and Van Jackson. It came out in the July 14th, 2022 issue of Foreign Affairs. And the headline is, Great Power Competition is Bad for Democracy. Rivalry with China and Russia reinforces the real causes of America's decline. Now, I thought this was an important article, not because it was so brilliant and had such insight, but because it's so rare that in any of these establishment think tanks that an article that says, wait, the whole presentation on the new Cold War and major power conflict as sort of a restorative element of American greatness has got it completely wrong. I want to read a paragraph to you from that article and then get your comments. Here it is. The Washington establishment's view that great power conflict is a net good for the United States derives from a tortured reading of Cold War history. In this view, Soviet rivalry provoked the passage of the Civil Rights Act, civil rights legislation, the space race led to innovations in technology, and computerization, and the Cold War economy created affluence and enabled home ownership for many Americans. The historical interpretation of the Cold War lies behind the recent legislation, including the 2021 Strategic Competition Act and the 2022 America Competes Act, both of which seek to marshal federal resources to spur economic development and job creation with an effort to compete China. It's really something, Ken. I've noticed it frequently that whenever Joe Biden says, look, we have to build America's, rebuild America's bridges because 70,000 of them literally are crumbling. We have to build roads and we have to build high-speed trains. We have to create new infrastructure. He even motivated it for the child tax credit and child development. He said, we have to do this because we have to compete with China. And I agree with these two authors. I'm sure I disagree with them on many other things, and they would disagree with us as socialists. But my point is, they're not wrong about this point, that this idea that this competition between Russia and China will bring back the glory days of the Cold War, where American hegemony really became a thing, that that's a misreading, a tortured misreading of the Cold War And none of this competition will provide jobs for the American people, will deal with the rise of white supremacists, will deal with the erosion or evisceration of core civil rights and social rights like the elimination of abortion rights. All of those things are the byproduct of the dictatorship of capital or the hard right wing in America, the tip of the spear of which is the Supreme Court and organizations like the Supreme Court or the Federal Reserve, which are unelected bodies making decisions that negatively impact the lives of the American people. None of that has to do with, or none of that will be solved 
by having a new Cold War or maybe hot war with Russia and China. I think these authors are right. But again, it's such a rare voice compared to the liberal voices that we did hear during the Cold War. With that, Ken, I'm going to give you the final word. Well, I think the best thing about this article is its title. I think that there's no question that great power competition is bad for democracy. What's interesting is that in the body of the article, there's a lot of talk about democracy. There's a lot of talk about the negative impact that the Cold War had on democracy, the restrictions on freedom, the efforts by the state to impose greater and greater control on citizens. There's a good alternative reading of that Cold War history, this the sort of glorification of the Cold War that we hear from a lot of politicians and and their willingness to sort of invoke that or try to to reestablish that. This idea that somehow the Cold War was was good because, you know, competition with the Soviet Union led to the Civil Rights Act. Well, that is a tortured reading because we understand, we talk about this, that of course there is a link. And it was the idea that the socialist camp, the Soviet Union, the socialist camp, the socialist movements around the world calling for greater democracy, calling for greater equality, while the United States went on, you know, perpetuating a system of racist oppression, it made it difficult for the United States to present itself, you know, as the bastion of freedom. And so there were political pressures that built up around that. And those get resolved, you know, with the Civil Rights Act or not resolved in practice, but resolved at least on a sort of visual rhetorical level through things like the Civil Rights Act. You know, there's an element in there that you can see, you know, forms the basis for those kinds of assertions. What I found curious about the article overall was that there was very little engagement with the economic realities of the Cold War, with the economic realities of what happened to working people in this country and how, especially in the final sort of end game of the Cold War, that goes in tandem with the unleashing of the neoliberal offensive against working people that has been characteristic of the United States, you know, since at least the Reagan administration and has its origins even a little before that, pushing back against the gains that had been made by the working class from the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, all the way up into the 1960s. The crisis of profitability that that generated with it for American capital leads to this re reconfiguration of capital and the engagement with the neoliberal offensive. None of that intrudes into the narrative here. The idea somehow that what we need today is this idea of a competition with China most particularly you know, they don't really mean competition. What they mean is conflict. What they mean is trying to, if what they really wanted was just to say, you know, you do your best, we'll do our best, and we'll see how things come out. That harkens back, of course, to, to Khrushchev at the kitchen debates with Nixon back in 1959, where Khrushchev pointed out that left to its own devices without the distortions of of the cold war of of the threat of nuclear annihilation the power of the socialist economy in the soviet union to meet the needs of the soviet people was growing dynamically and you know in time the superiority of that system could have could have been demonstrated the United States devoted everything it had to stopping that, to thwarting that, intimidating the Soviet Union, to forcing the kinds of arms races which contributed significantly to the erosion of the Soviet state and its ultimate collapse. Now they're trying to do the same thing to China. They're trying to drive China up against the wall rhetorically through these provocations offshore, you know, by demonizing the country. China is a very different in a very different situation. And I think that that in some ways, you know, the American elites have yet to really come to grips with the reality of, of China today. They're not going to outcompete China. This idea of sort of decoupling, delinking, that's not going to work. China has the capacity to innovate. It has the capacity to produce and develop in ways that, you know, kind of it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be, you know, the simplest way to do it. But it's, you know, they're not that vulnerable to that kind of American manipulation. So the United States doesn't really want a fair competition. But even if they did, you know, it would be a competition in which the Chinese, the Chinese are on the upward curve. They are a rising economy, a rising society. And that's something that that American elites cannot 
thus far come to grips with. How they're going to do that, you know, whether they're going to risk everything, whether they're going to say, if we can't run the world, you know, then the world can go to hell. I think that's a danger that we face. I think that what we need to do, what American people need to do, is to stand up and say, enough. You know, we don't want war. We don't want war with China. We don't want war with Russia. We don't want war with anybody. We want peace. We want prosperity. We want to develop our country. We want to have control over our lives. We want to, you know, let's build back better, but let's build back better in a way that actually serves the people, serves the needs of ordinary Americans. And that's not a war economy. That's not a uh, let's devote everything to trying to outcompete people that we think of as our enemies or that we demonize to make them seem like. Like enemies. Let's find a path that changes life here in positive ways, that reconstructs a future for the United States, and gives us a position in the world that's based on cooperation, collaboration, and the pursuit of a better future for everybody. Dr. Ken Hammond, thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.